I've been reading through the Proverbs in the Old Testament during my morning uh, time, and I was struck this week as I came across a proverb in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. And that proverb, perhaps it's familiar to you, says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That is hope that goes unfulfilled or that is pushed off for some reason makes the heart sick. It makes the soul weary. It brings about a sense of desperation. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What would you say is your ultimate hope in this life? What are you longing for? And has that hope been met? And as I prepared for the sermon, the message this morning, another thought came to mind. What if that hope, what we've been longing for, what we in fact need, that from our vantage has gone unfulfilled, it is deferred from our view, what if it's right in front of us and we've simply not embraced it yet? We see that reality as we continue our sermon series this morning in the book of Acts. We see a hope, a long-awaited hope right before the people, yet they miss it. They fail to embrace it. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 28. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 28 on page 937. If you're here this morning and you need a copy of the scripture, we'd love to give you a Bible in the lobby, the bookcases, the third bookcase, farthest from the, the front doors. There are some hardback black Bibles. Please take one. Please take one for a friend if they need one. Acts 28, we're nearing the series, uh, end of the series uh, in our study of Acts. We've been here almost a year. We'll finish next Sunday, the 28th. Uh, that series has been called Church on Mission, and we've witnessed the gospel move and radiate from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we are now, today, in Acts 28, the ends of the earth, the ends of the known earth, that is Rome. Paul is there on house arrest. And can, we can see his interaction with a collection of Jewish leaders. That's where we're at. Acts 28, beginning in verse 17, I'll read through verse 28. Luke, the author, tells us, after three days, he, that is Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him 
and his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The central truth of this sermon is that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world who will be rejected by some and received by others. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world who will be rejected by some and received by others. Now, by way of a review, perhaps you're just joining us this morning, uh, we took a look at Acts 28, 11 through 16, and we found that Paul finishes his long and dangerous journey from Jerusalem to Rome. So what I just read, Paul is on house arrest in Rome, and he's got there through a very difficult, dangerous, tumultuous journey. But God has seen fit to extend him favor, fulfilled his word that Paul would, in fact, preach the gospel in Rome, and that's what he does this morning in this passage. This is roughly the spring, A.D. 60. Paul is nearing the last two years of his life. He's in Rome, and there he seeks out some Jewish leaders, local leaders of the synagogue. Paul's practice when he went to a new town was to go directly to the synagogue and try to preach the gospel and win those Jews over to convince them that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah that they've been longing for. Well, he can't do that here in Rome because he's on house arrest. He's likely living in a guest house or an apartment of some kind and hospitable Christian there at the church in Rome. And he's got a guard at his front door. Paul's on house arrest. And so what does he do? He can't go to the synagogue. He invites them to come, and they, in fact, come. And so what I just read is the exchange that he has with these local Jewish leaders there while he's on house arrest. So to frame our time in this passage, we're going to see three movements. The first movement is this, a declaration of innocence. A declaration of innocence. We see this in verses 17 through 22. Paul begins this exchange with local Jewish leaders that he's invited from the synagogue to come and meet with him. And what he seeks to do is to establish his innocence. So Luke tells us after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans." Paul's emphasis through this exchange and through the series of trials that he endured from Acts chapter 21 all the way through Acts chapter 26 is that he is a devout and faithful Jew. 
He's innocent of these charges that have been levied against him. He's saying, I'm a faithful Jew. I've not violated the law of Moses. I am faithful, and I happen to believe that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah that we've all been waiting for, the resurrected Lord. That's what gets him arrested, flogged, under trial, is his conviction that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, the one they've all been waiting for. This phrasing here in verse 17 about Paul being delivered over is an echo of what happened to Jesus. Jesus, multiple times in the Gospels, multiple times in the Gospel of Luke, who is also the writer of Acts, speaks of him being handed over to the Roman authorities. So, for example, Luke chapter 18, verse 32, Jesus says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Why does Luke use the same phraseology with Jesus and now with Paul? It's very similar language. Luke's making a theological point that Paul is walking in the footsteps of his Lord. Paul is facing persecution as his Lord did. Friends, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You walk in his footsteps and you will face difficulty. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, anyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. So Luke is helping disciples manage their expectations about what will come when you follow Jesus. Expect difficulty. Jesus did. Jesus' servants, Paul did. His disciples did. And it follows that we will as well. Now, we happen to live in a country where we, we know some wonderful freedoms. But beware of thinking it's strange when difficulty comes upon you, when trial and persecution comes upon you. It's part and parcel of following the Lord Jesus. He knew it. His servant Paul knew it, and we do too, to one degree or another. Paul points to his innocence in verse 18 by relaying what the authorities of Judea concluded about him. Verse 18, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. So we saw this in the preceding chapters in Acts. The governors of Judea, the Roman governors, Felix and followed, Festus followed him, and King Agrippa, a Jewish king appointed by Rome, they, they all declared Paul's innocence. We find nothing worthy of death in this man. Over and over again, they concluded this. Yet Paul remained in custody. Why? Because of the leverage that the Jews in Palestine had. Those Roman authorities were charged with keeping the peace in Palestine. And the Jews were a notoriously difficult and rowdy lot. And so they exercised a level of power. We saw this at the, the trial of Jesus. What does Pilate fear in releasing Jesus? He fears an uproar, an uprising among the Jews, because then that's going to reflect negatively on him because Caesar in Rome is going to say, Pilate, handle your affairs. Keep the people under wraps. And the same thing happened 30 years later with Paul. They had leverage because they threatened an uproar. 
And so Felix and Festus caved to the political pressure of the people, their constituents, and kept Paul in custody. Paul ultimately, feeling cornered, calls on his Roman citizenship and says, I appeal to Caesar, because he saw where this was headed. Verse 19, because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. So Paul's appeal to Caesar was not retaliatory to the Jews. You see here, he's not seeking vengeance. He's not trying to stick it to them. He's just trying to declare his innocence. That's why he appealed to Caesar. And it ended up being his ticket to Rome to fulfill the word of the Lord that, Paul, you will indeed go to Rome and proclaim the gospel there. So Paul, we see here, did not appeal to Caesar in order to stick it to his nation. He says, I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, I want you to think about that. Paul is saying, I didn't have a charge to bring against my nation. Okay, Paul, these people are trying to doggedly pursue you to kill you. You have no charge? What does that tell you about the heart of Paul? Paul trusts retribution, vengeance into the hands of the Lord. He doesn't take it into his own hands. He can, can, he can say with a clear conscience, I didn't have anything against them. No charge against them. Paul leaves vengeance into the hands of the Lord. He is not bitter or enraged toward the people who are hostile toward him. Oh, it's so instructive for us. When you are maligned and mistreated, often we respond with bitterness and vehemence and rage. Vengeance is the Lord. Vengeance is the Lord's. Leave it to him. Paul is simply seeking to establish his innocence. Continues in verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Again, he's on house arrest, likely chained to that guard that's living with him. What is the reason for his imprisonment? What is the reason for the chain? What's the root of it all? Paul says it's the hope of Israel. My belief in the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? Or better asked, who is the hope of Israel? It's the Messiah the one they waited for, longed for, for centuries. And Paul's saying, we found him. He is Jesus Christ, the hoped-for Messiah. That is the hope that is right before the people, yet they don't even know it. Jesus Christ, the one who proved his Messiahship through his resurrection. You see, the resurrection vindicated, proved Jesus as the true, the one Messiah. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the hope of Israel. In fact, he's the hope of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. We are in a great predicament, dead in our sin. But God makes us alive together with Christ through the Messiah. This is the good news of the gospel. He's overcome the grave through his resurrection. And he offers forgiveness to all who will trust in him all who will give their lives to him, saying, Jesus, I am yours. I surrender to you. That's the proper response to the Messiah. Now, Paul goes on to fully expound the gospel message as he continues this exchange with this local collection of Jewish leaders. Surprisingly, the Jews in Rome 
have received no word about Paul. If you're reading this, this ought to catch you by surprise given what's happened in Jerusalem and the uproar. They say in verse 21, we have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, that is the sect of the Nazarenes or Christians, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. They've received no letters from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And that is surprising. It might be that because of the poor travel conditions of the winter, as we saw Paul endured in his voyage, the letter hasn't arrived yet. Or maybe it's just viewed as small potatoes in the Roman Empire. We knew that the local Jews in Jerusalem had great leverage before the Roman authorities there because they could create a stir and it would reflect poorly on those Roman leaders in Judea who were supposed to keep the peace. But that leverage didn't exist in Rome, and now they're in Rome. So this might just be, it's small potatoes in the view of Rome now. In any case, the Jews in Rome have heard nothing about Paul, and they seem open to a hearing. They lend him their ears. So we see a declaration of innocence moving to the second section, an indictment for resistance. An indictment for resistance. Let's look together at verses 23 through 27. Luke says, When they had appointed a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So Paul is given this favorable hearing before all these Jews. And they come on another day vast in number to hear him. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What's Paul doing here? Luke says he's expounding to them the scriptures. That word means to expose or to unpack and put before somebody. That's the nature of preaching, to take what's in the text and mine it out, dig it up, and present it before people that they can digest it. That's what we seek to do every Sunday. Someone, myself or Dylan Colley or one of our elders, opens the Bible and we seek to expound or expose what is in it. God has given us treasure in his word. And yes, it does require some work and some digging to mine it out. But once we do, we put it before one another and we benefit from it. We are nourished by it. That's what Paul's doing. He's expounding the truths of the gospel from the scripture. His content, we see, is the kingdom of God. He preaches the kingdom of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is his right rule in our rebellious hearts. The kingdom of God is his right rule, his right reign in our hearts. And how is that made possible? By King Jesus, who's invited into our hearts, who's given access to our hearts. Faith in this king is what places us in subjection to him. We enter the kingdom of God like a child, Jesus says. How does a child respond to his mom? Dependence and trust. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of God, to trust in the true king and to place your life in subjection to him. He preaches the kingdom of God, and then he also preaches Christ from the Old Testament. Look at verse 23. Paul, 
seeks to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Friends, we talk about this a lot. The only way to rightly understand the Old Testament is to see Christ as the fulfillment of it. There's a danger in approaching the Old Testament just because looking at stories and moralistic teachings that say do better or behave more uprightly, that will leave you flat on your face every time. You need to preach Christ from the Old Testament because he's there. You can think of the, the breakdown of the scripture as the Old Testament anticipates Christ, the Gospels in the New Testament narrate Christ, and the letters in the New Testament apply Christ. So the Old Testament anticipates Christ, the Gospels narrate Christ, and the letters apply the work of Christ. So Paul is working hard to show them the truths of Christ from their own scriptures. This is exactly what Jesus said when he was doing his earthly ministry. John chapter 5, verse 39, before groups of Jewish leaders, Jesus says, they, the Hebrew scriptures, testify about me. All of those scriptures in the Old Testament speak to, point toward Jesus. He's the fulfillment of them all. And likewise, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus is walking along a road with two despairing disciples, Cleopas and then an unnamed fellow. And Jesus comes up alongside them and kind of blinds their eyes to who he truly is. And he's saying, brothers, why so sad? Oh, have you not heard of what has happened in these days? How they crucified the one that we anticipated being the, the Messiah. And she said, oh, slow to believe all the prophets said. Did you not know that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die and to rise again on the third day? And then Luke says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted in the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opens up the Old Testament and shows them how it all points to him. Oh, to be a fly on the wall during that conversation. He opens all of the Hebrew scriptures and he speaks to them how he is the fulfillment of all of them. Oh, just to, just to hear into that conversation. And the Bible tells us those two men, their heart was burning with fire and love after that conversation. Jesus is the fulfillments of all of the Old Testament. It is a privilege to preach it. Our practice at Beacon is to alternate books of the Bible. So we preach through an Old Testament book, and then we preach through a New Testament book. So we've been in Acts for a whole year. So what's next is a two-week series in Proverbs chapter 3, a very well-known proverb, the way of wisdom. So we're going to do a two-week series in Proverbs 3, and then for the rest of the fall, we're going to be in Ezra, Return from Exile. What a great book to be in. After two and a half difficult years, many of us feel like we've been in exile. And Ezra is a wonderful encouragement of God's faithfulness to sustain his people and bring them back and restore them. So we seek to preach Christ from the Old Testament. That's what Paul did that day. How did the people respond? Well, Luke tells us, verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. A mixed response initially then ultimately turns to full rejection after a certain scriptural quotation. What quote drives the people away? Verse 25. 
and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement in particular. The Holy Spirit was right, Paul says, in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. So this is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And incidentally, notice what Paul says here. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah, who inspired the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit did. This is the, the, the nature, the theology of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. What does that mean? God breathed it out. He directed it through God the Holy Spirit and the pen of human beings. Now, I know that there's mystery and tension there. God communicated exactly what he wanted through human pen and personality. That's why there's such diversity in the Scripture. It's God's mind communicated through human pen and personality. Different people, different personalities wrote the scriptures. But it all is communicating God's mind, his will. It's inspired by him. So we see that here. This quote from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Go to this people, the Lord says to Isaiah, and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. I would restore them. The word is a salvation word. I would save them if they would turn to me. So this quotation from Isaiah 6 is from his call to ministry. It's that famous passage in Isaiah 6 where he sees the vision of the Lord and says, woe is me. Then a seraphim comes, takes a coal from the altar, puts it on Isaiah's lips, cleanses him, and sends him with this message. Look, you're going to go and you're going to preach, but be forewarned, no one's going to listen. People's eyes and ears, eyes are going to be blind, ears are going to be stopped up. They will not listen to you. And so this is a trajectory of God's word going to God's people throughout history, redemptive history. Resistance, resistance, resistance. God is patient with his rebellious people. He continues to send faithful messengers, prophets, into the New Testament with John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, how do they respond? By and large, the Jews reject, resist. And then we see this indictment here of the Jews in Paul's day. Verse 27, this people's heart has grown dull. The term here is, is, is striking. Their heart has grown thick. My mother used to say, Dan, you are thick-headed. What did she mean? You are obstinate and you are rebellious. You won't hear. It doesn't get through there. Your hearts have grown thick. In dermatology, it's the thickening of the skin, like the back of a rhinoceros that's desensitized by design to protect it. Your hearts have grown desensitized, thickening of the skin. The nerve endings are way down below. You can't feel what I'm doing. That's the idea here. Friends, beware a thickened heart that becomes impenetrable by the kind grace of God. How do we thicken ourselves? How do we harden ourselves? By continuing to live in our sin and self-sufficiency. 
It thickens us over time. It, as the Bible says, sears our conscience. It burns those nerve endings such that we're no longer sensitized to his truth. Beware self-reliantly continuing in your sin. It thickens your heart. You're made dull to his tender sensation. This is a hard saying. It's not surprising that the Jews walk away from Paul. This is a hard saying. And I just want to encourage you, how do you respond to hard sayings in the Bible? The temptation is to kind of depart from the Bible and no longer read it, or depart from God's people and no longer gather. I've seen that in the seven-year history of our church. I would say this, friend. We're going to preach the hard sayings. We're going to preach the whole counsel of the Scripture. But when you come across something that's hard to hear, keep pressing in, keep pursuing, keep reading, keep surrounding yourself with God's people because in time it becomes clearer and your heart remains soft. And I would also encourage you, how do you respond when the person that you're trying to minister to is hardened towards you, seems dull to you, won't hear it? We'll pray for them, number one. And there is a time where we, you can't force it down anybody's throat. Move on and seek an, a, a receptive person, but don't give up on them. Be ready when they're ready. Pray for them and be ready when they're ready. You'd be surprised. They'll come, come around. By the grace of God, they'll come around. A declaration of innocence, an indictment for resistance, the third and final movement in the passage, a transition toward acceptance a transition toward acceptance. We see this in verse 28. Upon confronting the hard-hearted resistance from the Jews, Paul concludes this in verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What's Paul saying? He's doing what I just encouraged you. You share, but there comes a time where you move on. You seek a receptive ear. That's what he does. And we've, he's done this throughout Acts. Let me give you a sampling of Paul moving on from Jews to now Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, verse 46, Paul is in Pisidian Antioch, which is a, a city in what is now modern-day Turkey, central, southern Turkey. He says, since you thrust this gospel aside, we now turn to the Gentiles. So it's Paul's pattern. Jew first, then to the Gentile. Preach to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He goes to new cities, new towns. Where does he go? Synagogue first, and then he gets often booted out into the marketplace among Gentiles. Acts 18, verse 6 in Corinth. After preaching, the Jews reject him. He then says, your blood be on your own heads. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. A third time in Ephesus, Acts 19, verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul moves on from the synagogue after he is opposed there, and he goes to the public hall of Tyrannus, this public forum of teaching where Jews and Gentiles would gather. He says, okay, you don't want to hear it. I'll go to somebody who does. There is an order of delivery of the gospel in the scripture. It goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. That doesn't mean that there's, Jews are inherently more valuable than Gentiles. It's just God's design in the delivery of the gospel, Jew first and then Gentile. The irony is there's also often an order of acceptance. Do you know how that order goes? Gentile first and then Jews later. It's the Gentiles who are often the first to hear it and to receive it. And then, 
based on Romans chapter 11, there is coming a time where the harvest of Jews will come in. There's an order of delivery, Jew first, then Gentile, but there's a reality of the order of acceptance, Gentile first, then Jew. We see here that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world that Paul preached both to Jew and Gentile alike, offering this hope, inviting people to trust in him as Isaiah did. God says to Isaiah, if they would just turn to me, I would come and heal them. I would restore them. What a glorious invitation. That's the nature of the gospel. If you're, friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you have never been forgiven of your sins, today is the day. Look to Christ. He loves you more than you even understand. The hope of the world is right before you. Trust in him. He's died for you. He was buried in a tomb. He rose again to conquer the grave, and he's offering you forgiveness, full and free. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to achieve it. You don't have to behave well for it. You believe in him, and then he changes your behavior and your desires and your affections over time. It's the good news of the gospel received by faith. So what is your ultimate hope today? Jesus Christ is our ultimate hope, made available to us as a gift that we receive by faith. Paul is drilling down on his resurrection. And I think for good reason, because what is one of our greatest fears in this life? Friends, consider the fear of death and how our culture and healthcare, all of this we, we try to avoid or skate or push off death as long as we can. And the Bible says that Christ has conquered death and we need not fear it. It's no longer a slave master. So in your heart of hearts, are you afraid to die? We're offered a gift in the gospel that we need not fear the slave master of death. It will come to all of us if Christ doesn't come first. But upon experiencing it, we open our eyes into the glorious presence of Jesus and his resurrection. There's a question that will divide humanity on the day of judgment. That question is this. What did we do with Jesus? How did we respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? That question and our response to it divides humanity. Our eternal destination hinges on our answer to that question. There are two responses, acceptance of Jesus or rejection of Jesus. And so as you consider your own life, what is your response to Jesus? Will you receive him? Will you accept him? To accept Jesus, I know this, some of this is just church lingo. What does that actually mean? It, it means a couple of things. To accept Jesus is to trust him as your savior. Now, in order to do that, you have to realize that you need saving. There's a problem. You're in a predicament. You need to be saved from it. That problem is sin. The predicament is death, and Jesus comes and saves you from it. So to accept Jesus is to trust him as Savior, but also to surrender to him as Lord, to say, I have made a mess of my life, and I need you. Will you come and be my leader? I'm trying to work through these conversations with my eight-and-a-half-year-old. That's what it means to accept Jesus, to say, I trust you as my Savior, and I want you to lead me as my Lord, because I make a mess when I try to be in control. Will you trust Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior? He is 
your hope. He is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift it is to have it in our language, to study it, and read it, to understand it, to expound it. God, would you make us people of your word, people who are hungry for it, who daily seek to take it in, that we might be sustained, equipped, encouraged, and counseled, and challenged. God, I pray that you would take what we've read, what I've spoken, God, use it for your purposes. Lord, as you send the rain and the water down, it always accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. We rest in that truth and the reliability of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.